Hey guys, this is Kind of an Expert. My name is Corey Tyndall, and I am your host. And this week, we've got one of my best friends from college. I've known her for a long time, Jessica Suhanik, on the show. She is actually a trauma surgeon in Michigan. Uh, So the first part of the podcast, we talk about kind of what her job was before, some interesting Um, medical mishaps that she had to deal with and then we pretty much get into uh, COVID-19 and how her life has changed and get a very vivid picture of what hospitals are like now. So I hope you enjoy it and let's get into it. Especially comedians are normally pretty good. Like, yeah, because like, you guys talk in the mics all the time. Right, but like, exactly what I was talking about right there. You like the mic was out here, and you're sort of just talking mm-hmm. down like that. Well, so I'm it's not like, gonna be okay. <laughs> <laughs> fine. Have your, have your. No, it's victory. good. It is funny though. Like some, even some comedians have a problem with it if they just like are not. You like they just haven't done it for long enough, and meanwhile, like the guy that I had on who's been doing it for like ten years is like upside down in his chair talking about like complex finance, and it's just <laughs> he's like doing it perfectly. And the entire time I'm watching him, I'm like, "Damn, this motherfucker actually like he's he got knows. it. He knows what he's doing. He knows. he knows what he's doing." I meant to ask you, did you ever get a chance to finish Tiger King? Uh, yes, okay. I finished it on like day two that it came out. What? I thought you had, like, I would have messaged you before, but I thought you had, uh... Work. Well, so this yeah. was, Tiger King came out, like, what, at the beginning of March-ish? Somewhere? Was it? End? It feels like years ago. I don't even fucking know. Um, <laughs> but it was, at a, it was at a weird time where the hospital had shut down a lot of, like, extraneous stuff, but we um, hadn't gotten the COVID slam yet so okay. we were having extra yeah. days off and so i had an extra day off and tiger king popped up and i was like hmm. nice interesting this looks interesting what is this all about <laughs> and i watched all of the all of it in two days nice i guess my i just assume you're way behind on tv because everything else that i've asked you about you're like i haven't gotten around to it i know everybody yeah, says so i have to i'm a, I'm a like <laughs> documentary reality tv kind of a junkie so if it's something like that and i mean this was like the the mother of all documentary slash reality tv train wrecks yeah and it was like right up my alley like this is it's right up everybody's alley to be completely fair (laughs) but yeah i was i was i watched it so long ago it's so funny that was like at the beginning of quarantine and yeah. Here we are. That did come on at the at the best time. There's like a few comedians that also had the same like they shot their specials and it came out very beginning of quarantine when nobody was doing anything and it's just like huge boost. Like comedy specials being the number one thing in oh, yeah. on Netflix for a while. And meanwhile, there's also a ton of comedians that I've heard of that were gonna shoot their special and then a week beforehand the quarantine hit and they couldn't do it so now they're just like they're stuck it's so it's like luck of the draw man it it's uh it's wild yeah uh some people got real fucked during this quarantine definitely including you well i mean your did your hours change at all no no okay no it's just like the type of work like i guess give me the biggest couple of differences so i'm not it's mostly the type of work and the amount of death that you see on a daily basis (laughs) i'm sorry that was just the way you said the amount of death well you know i'm trying not to be like a total downer about the whole situation but no i mean yeah it's it's pretty overwhelming i mean like I shouldn't have laughed. No. I'm sorry. Well, you you know. caught me off guard. I didn't think you were going to say that. <laughs> it's your fault is what I'm saying. All oh, right. Gee, sorry. No. Yeah. We're somber um, here. Uh, yeah. It's It wasn't really ours. Our hours are basically the same no matter what. We work basically 12 hours at least every single day. There were some more days that I had to stay late to catch up on extra things that had happened or things that happened right as we were about to leave and we couldn't leave for the person coming on to cover at night um so that was it the type of work was very different you know we're not doing surgeries but we're doing a lot of like 
bedside procedures, things that um, we do, but just like ramped up in numbers. And they always take a lot of extra time. And we always had with COVID patients, they're just, you have to take all these extra precautions and, you know, garb up before going in. And then it's always just the extra stress of like being that close. So I guess let's, let's start from, uh, square one so what were you doing on a daily basis before all of this so before covid we would get to the hospital very early in the morning you see all of the patients you have to see um on our morning rounds and i even mean like what was your role specifically in the hospital like way like what type of uh i guess what type of illness illness isn't the right word i guess like, no, I what mean, were you dealing with what when people came in what was your job to deal yeah, with yeah sure so gallbladders appendixes um your bowels kinking off colon cancer just like emergency breast room. cancer emergency room planned things got it um if you perforate an ulcer in your stomach that's us if you have a (sighs) flesh-eating bacteria skin infection that's us that sounds fun if you (laughs) have things coming out of orifices that shouldn't be that's us (laughs) um if you stick things in orifices that don't belong and they get stuck that's us nice how many of those in a year um Actually, not as many as you would think. I think it's just because I don't know when what you, I would think when you um, <laughs> I honestly have no gauge of how how often that mm-hmm. happens. Well, so the one that I remember was a 19 year old kid who had been fooling around with his girlfriend and got a giant dildo stuck up his asshole. Um, actually, it wasn't a dildo; it was a vibrator. Because when oh. the ED doctor called me to say I think this guy needs surgery, he couldn't stop laughing because it was still vibrating oh, inside his body. Shit. And so they were trying to get it out, and they couldn't. And so we eventually had to take him to surgery. So the poor kid has Holy like a C-section scar shit. now because he got a vibrator stuck with his butt. So. Make sure it's got strings, I guess, is the moral of that strings story, so like, you can pull it out. I, man. Because otherwise you're going to... Oh, my God. Do you think any of his friends know, or he's just like, I'm putting this shit on locked? Like, he just disappeared, and when their friends are like, where'd you go? He's like, left the country. I don't... <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't... I mean, if you were a 19-year-old guy and you got a giant vibrator stuck up your ass, would you tell your friends? Oh, man. I don't know. My friends are fucking weird. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know my friends. <laughs> <They'd>, <laughs> I'm sure yeah, his friends know. didn't know. I mean, he and his girlfriend, they were really nice, but we were just like, got a little, yeah, a little what out of a, hand. That's a great point. What was he like? Was he just like, yeah, no, it's still, I can feel it vibrating in there. Like, Yeah, he was he was <laughs> feels like, like I'm sitting on a cell phone. It, he was like clearly uncomfortable because so many people had to have put their fingers up there to try and get it out. <laughs> Um, Sounds like he's used to that. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, it was just They couldn't at least like stick their finger up there and like hit the button? (laughs) No, it it was so far up there. It was like far past fingers. Nobody could even like. So the fun thing is, is when you get stuff stuck up your butthole, um, we try to get it out manually, which is essentially somebody sticks their fingers up there and pinches it. Uh, No, we don't try to use tweezers because you could risk tearing uh, the wall of the bowel and that would be really bad that would be bad um, so we try that The if that doesn't work then we put you to sleep basically we give you sedatives and then everything relaxes the muscles in your intestines relax and a lot of times it just kind of slides out so where we, where we can grab it and pull it out <laughs> And then if that doesn't work, you bought yourself an operation, my friend, and are the butt of the joke for many, many years. I'm so uh, sorry to this guy because... Butt of the joke. Yeah. It was a good pun. <laughs> um, do you guys draw straws for who gets to catch the dildo as it comes out? Um, well, <laughs> or do you just so let it hit the floor? You, um, it kind of goes to whoever has the smallest fingers. What? Because those fit up there easier. Uh, so, so you guys like put your hands together and like measure who's got the smallest fingers it or goes, just go to you it just typically goes to me first of all because i'm bottom of the totem pole and second of all because i have tiny ass little fingers so third of all because you enjoy doing it well you know <laughs> can i get a need to admit to anything <laughs> man that would be uh a fucking trip 
that would how many of the wait how okay how many of those have you done just one and you like okay so just that kid yeah poor kid it's like the next time it happens you're gonna be like oh, here we go again and you're mean, like you're gonna laugh at it this time like all well, right time, here we go again yeah I, I mean at least that one's like funny but there are yeah. a lot of things where uh very serious situations where it's very easy to just get pissed off like a yeah. lot of the traumas that we see people falling off of roofs falling off a ladder shooting each other falling off their <laughs> motorcycles a lot of times you're like god this fucking asshole i really gotta deal with this shit right now even though like obviously these are people that need help they desperately you know need some kind of intervention by us yeah but when you see your like umpteenth hand blown off by a firecracker you get a little annoyed <laughs> because god damn it don't people know to not grab firecrackers yeah. but apparently we still have to tell people please don't grab firecrackers they can explode uh unpredictably and take your hand with it and if you really don't want to be seen in the emergency department by a very tired very angry doctor uh don't do it <laughs> yeah and i'm assuming there's no situation where you could put the hand back on um, not with blast injuries like that. Ah, they're, too rough. They're, uh, you have just a lot of extra tissue damage. So if you want to re-implant an amputated body part, it yeah. has to be a clean cut so that yeah. we can find the ends of arteries, nerves, veins, and reattach them. Damn. That would be a high-stress surgery to do, right? Like, Or is it more just like, like sewing? You're just putting shit back together? Um, it's... Th- Mm, it is sewing and putting things back together. The bigger problem is finding the things and making sure they line up appropriately. Like Got you're it. attaching the right end of one artery with its pair or its twin, um, you know, because everything kind of looks the same. It's not all in like bright reds and blues right. like it is in the diagrams. <laughs> when you have a hand, especially a hand that's been blown up by something, it looks like hamburger meat. Uh, so it's kind oh of impossible God. to find. So uh. even even in this, so then you just have to go back to our training and our anatomy and we're like, well, this structure should be here. And a lot of it's kind of guesswork. Um, yeah. So, but Damn. you definitely need a clean cut because if you don't have a clean cut, you just have really damaged ends of tissue and they won't heal even if you're able to find them, dig them out and put them back together. Right. So give me the ratio, men to women. How how often are you mad at the person who comes in for what they did that you have to deal with? I mean, most traumas are men because I don't know what it is about <laughs> men, but overwhelmingly they don't always think to the end of their action they just kind of do something and then yeah. it happens to them and they're yeah. like oh i have no idea gotta get but shit there's done been, uh, there's been a fair amount of fair amount of ladies out there that have also just been peaches to deal with like what it, what happens because when you like everything you listed like blowing your hand off with a firework or falling off a motorcycle or shooting each other like I, every single one of those you said i was thinking like man 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 what are some like what are some uh usual female stuff that you would have to deal with well unfortunately most of the women that come in especially in the trauma setting are victims of abuse or violence mm. um so um, the vast majority of them are either uh, drivers or passengers in car accidents or they are beaten pretty badly by their boyfriend, husband, some random asshole at a bar. And so that's mostly what we see. Occasionally we get, get other things where like, I don't know, but for the most part, if it's somebody, something that somebody did to themselves, because they were being a moron <laughs> 9.5 times out of 10 it's a dude nice yeah so, all right congrats. well at least then you don't have to like feel bad for them no it sounds like you just really <laughs> then, pretty, pretty much you know. i mean you do you do feel kind of bad but at the same time it's like why were you up in a tree at 4 a.m watching the sunrise and quote unquote enjoying nature to only fall out of it and impale yourself on a branch like i just i want to know the thought process <laughs> that's a true story by the way that was like my first month oh my god my first month as a doctor 
we get I get a page because you know it's 1980 and we still carry pagers. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a page and they're like, oh, we have a level one trauma come in. It's this guy with a penetrating chest wound. Penetrating chest wounds are bad. There's that lots sounds of, really there's, bad. There's lots of there's <laughs> lots of shit in your chest that you need to live. Um, you know, like heart a, and lungs and the other big, guy had a, big blood vessels. The other guy had a penetrating ass wound. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, kind <laughs> no of. No wound, I guess. Not no wound, but just <laughs> it got stuck. The joke works. Just roll it. Ooh, but yeah. <laughs> penetrating ass wound. We had an old lady who was trying to get up oh. off the toilet. I mean, she was also like not that old she was in her 50s and she was oh that's not old she was that's um, like my mom <laughs> my parents what what was what was her problem i don't know but she was she was kind of a real bitch but she uh got up off the toilet and then somehow fell or something and fell onto a don't say the plunger it wasn't a toilet plunger but it was oh. something very similar oh. and impaled her rectum oh and, my god yeah oh man that's <laughs> so, Horrible. I hate that a lot. Yeah, uh, it's very painful. I felt very bad for her. And then I had to talk to her and listen to her just... just I don't want to be... Did she try and lie about it? No, she didn't try and lie about it. She was just... She was just... She's just a bitch. Like, I can't oh. explain it. There are some... You know, there... Patients don't, like, change their personalities just because they're patients. Mm. Like... And they tend to treat you and all of the staff that is there to help and make them get better and get out of the hospital. There are lots of patients that treat you like dirt. And it's very difficult to remind yourself that they are in pain and they are suffering and, right. and Stress, all of these things anxiety, when they're yeah. yelling at you because they haven't gotten coffee, even though that is n- not part of my job. Yeah. Like, Right. Sorry, you haven't gotten your shitty hospital coffee. I had to go take care of a patient that was dying two rooms over. But yes, this is my fault. Please continue to rail at me about why you don't have warm coffee. So, yeah, she was she was uh, she was like that, which was, you know, pleasant to deal with at 6 a.m. every morning. Yeah, that so how she was in the the hospital for an extended period of so like, did you have to do surgery on right, her? Right, so we had to do surgery on her because we had to repair all of the torn intestines that she had. Um, oh my god! And then she, the reason she had fallen is she was like, I'm trying to remember. I've seen a lot of people. She, I, if I'm remembering correctly, she was debilitated because she was basically in liver failure from alcohol abuse, and so she was really uh. weak. Um, and she basically couldn't, she didn't have enough arm strength to lift herself to transfer from like the toilet to another thing. So yeah, that's not good. No, not really. (sighs) Wow. Okay. So we pretty much established what you were doing and now like what percentage of what percentage of the stuff that you're doing on a day to day basis now is covid because i would assume almost 100 percent. because everybody's just sitting at home doing nothing like how are they gonna blow their hand off yeah so uh, the day-to-day is mostly covid and it's kind of slowed down now with the stay-at-home order here in michigan for the last shout out gretchen yeah (laughs) that woman from michigan yeah um for the last like five weeks the numbers have gone down which is good uh, but the first couple weeks, as it was before everything really went into place, was very hectic. Um, and pretty much the whole day from start to finish was just we have a COVID patient, they're not doing well, we need to put them on a ventilator. And when somebody goes on a ventilator, we also need to put in very large IVs into their big veins in either their neck or their groin, as well as um, smaller. IVs in their arteries to help measure their blood pressure more accurately and to help administer medications we can't normally give through just the regular IVs that right. you all know and love. Um, and so <laughs> they are my favorite. Yeah. Um, so we were doing that because surgery residents aren't scared of, you know, big vessels that bleed. I mean, we are, but less <laughs> less so than the medicine residents who are already stressed out enough trying to, like, keep their patients alive. Right. So pretty much we'd get there in the morning, and then we would just go from room to room to room putting in these lines. They're called central lines and arterial lines um, for these patients. And 
that's pretty much all we were doing all day every day and we still had our own surgical patients to round on so it's it's not like people stopped having acute appendicitis it's not like right. people stopped having skin flesh-eating bacterial infections it's not like people stopped having gallbladder issues it's not like people stopped getting in car accidents although they went down i was gonna say like that one actually seems like it they go went down. down um it was really funny you could definitely tell when more people were out because we would get more car accidents if it was like a weekend day or before they closed church sundays tended to be really yeah. busy um but then they closed church too so that stopped but you know, our service got so small that our um, skills went to other things. So pretty right. much it was, we weren't necessarily involved with the more um, medical management of everything. It was basically like if they needed a procedure done. So if they needed something that was invasive, like putting a big catheter in an IV or in a vein to get... Uh, good blood pressures and administer very caustic medications that was us um, eventually once they started um, I don't want to say maturing that sounds weird but like eventually once the patient started to be on the ventilator for a couple weeks and it was clear they weren't coming off we would put in trachs which are the breathing tubes with the hole that come out, comes out your neck hmm. um, so that was us because nobody else is going right. to do that so the, the bloodier stuff yeah, pretty much. Really? Pretty much. If it, if, huh. if it involves anything that involves a scalpel mm. or a big needle, yeah, it's us. The scary shit. Like the, everything yeah. you're terrified of, that's yeah, what Jess pretty is much. doing. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Okay. Man. So was that transition just like, was that a big learning curve for you guys? Or you're just like, it's more of the same, essentially just in a different situation like how did your day-to-day -day change it was more of the same but just ramped up in numbers normally these central line kinds of consults that we get we get maybe a couple a week um okay. you know if we have one of our patients it's very critical they're you know they have a perforated colon and they're spilling stool all into their abdomen and things like that um they're really sick and they need monitoring in the icu and they need to stay in a ventilator and they need pressers to keep their blood pressure up then we do all these procedures for them um but these weren't our surgical patients they're right. entirely medical disasters um and so it was just it was the same stuff but it was just so much more in number i mean we were putting we were seeing 10 15 of these patients every day and it it takes a while to put in one of these these central lines it takes probably about right. an hour from start to finish getting all your supplies making sure everything is kosher making sure it's all clean and sterile and that you're not right. introducing another infection because you were a dodo and you didn't clean their skin before you poked them with a big needle um so it was just more time and stressful because we were frantically running around you know we wouldn't always know when they would come in they would all tend to come in in clusters whenever the medical team had come by and been like this patient needs a line this patient needs a line this patient needs a line and then we'd run up and we'd like run around it was just very frantic for the first couple of days we'd get yeah. there, we'd hear pages overhead where they'd call for anesthesia stat in a room and we knew that was a patient that was crashing and would need lines so we'd run up and see what we could do to help um so it was all very surgery is stressful but it's for the most part unless you're in trauma where somebody blows their hand off and even still in trauma everything's very measured everything is very right. algorithmic everything is very planned methodical precise it's um, never something you haven't seen before well, not always. No. <laughs> People, the, you know, half of half of surgery uh, and half of the the surgery training is almost falls back on the old medical adage of see one do one teach one. Okay. And so you watch somebody do it, then you do it yourself, and then you, you know you're you're right. thrown to the wolves. Yeah. Go for it. Be by yourself. We're a little bit more controlled these days, but even still, some of the stuff that we do, it's like, well, I saw it once. I guess we got to try it on this one too. Let's go for it. Wing it. Kind of. <laughs> Not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, but you're better winging it than the rest of us would be. You can wing it, but you just got to have a little bit of a plan. You got you can wing it, but only if you know, have some kind of idea of right. what you're doing. I'm not going to wing it. Yeah. You can wing it. I can wing it because I know where not to cut. Yeah. You yeah. can't wing it. Yes, that is the problem. It's not knowing where to cut. It's knowing where not to cut. Yeah. Um, okay. That's interesting. The thing that stuck out uh, to me there was you were like, yeah, we were doing 
10 to 15 of these like super invasive uh surgeries on these covid patients and it like hit me i was like you're not in a big city no like Lansing's not a big city. Flint no. is not a big city. And that's kind of where you're like bouncing in between, right? So like, I mean, the rate, I guess what I'm more uh, curious about is like the rate of people who came in that, uh, yeah, of all people who came in, who needed this invasive surgery and who like was just kind of fine, like they were there uh, just trying hopefully not to get worse yeah good good questions um i don't have exact numbers for you yeah sure but i do have you didn't do the homework before this well (laughs) so come on you only worked a 12 hour day get with it jess this podcast is important (laughs) (laughs) um no so of all of the patients that came in um so the hospital i was at most during the thick of this was in flint um and we converted five of our floors entirely to take care of COVID patients. Out of how many floors? So out of the treatment floors. So, um, got to think about it for a second. Yeah, that's fine. I just need like a, I'm just looking for like percentage of floors that, uh, that have now become COVID that would have been used for, for something else. So in this hospital, there are about 10 or 11 patient floors that get used regularly and two ICUs. There's the ICU and then the CCU. The difference is ICU is the intensive care unit. CCU is the cardiac care unit. So anybody with like heart attacks, big cardiac issues goes there. Um, but still very similar in the fact of the nursing care that you'll receive, the type of doctors that work those floors and such. So our ICU was completely transitioned to COVID only. There were no, and the CCU was then transitioned to, um, everything besides COVID, uh, the normal (laughs) ICU stuff, except for COVID. Uh, and then the remaining floors. Uh, we had four remaining floors that were transitioned to COVID only and the other floors, I think there were four or five floors that were for the normal hospital operations. So essentially, it's so like 50% of the floors are Yeah, I don't think now. it was quite, quite that. I'm, I'm doing a lot of this on the fly and it's not just like the raw number of floors in the hospital, right? Like some of the floors are reserved for different things, but probably at least a third of the hospital was transitioned to COVID only out of like a 350 bed hospital. Yeah. Um, When I first got there at the beginning of March or April, what month is it? I don't know. It's uh, May 1st. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Yay, May. Um, Yeah. When I first got there at the beginning of April, we had about 80 COVID patients in the hospital at that point in time. And about 50 of them required ventilators, these invasive procedures and um, monitoring in the ICU. The thing was, is there were many more people positive for COVID, but unless you were really, really tanking, you weren't getting admitted. They were telling you to go home until you got worse and then to come back. That was that was how it was going in in New York, too. There were a lot of reportedly a lot of doctor's offices that um, just kind of they people would walk in with like relatively severe symptoms, but not on the verge of actually like turning for the worse. And they were like turned away, including one of my uh, one of my friends who uh, I won't name specifically, but she like she never even actually got a test, despite the fact that uh, she was like bedridden for four or five days. Like she couldn't move. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, go on. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it's it, that's very similar to what it was here. And overall, um, you know, it's one of the biggest failures of this is the lack of testing, um, because with the lack of testing, we don't know really who's got it and who doesn't. We don't right. know who to isolate from whom. Um, we don't know really how to control these hot spots because the only people getting tested are the people that are essentially dying of it anyways. And that's not really right. who we need to control. We need to control the people that are asymptomatic but still infectious. And so they're running around doing their normal 
everyday stuff and right. just you know spread it around spreading it around spreading it like butter <laughs> like butter <laughs> so yeah no that's that's true um so i guess i i still want to focus on like the the hospital like when someone does come in and they don't get turned away to, so like that means they're essentially declining. Like you guys are worried they're gonna they're gonna die in the next week or so. Not necessarily that we're gonna die, but um, that they will. Well, I guess yeah. I mean, without invasive management, yeah. without more aggressive things, they would die. So then, these people are coming in. Well, one, I guess the first part is like, what is your mental state when they're coming in in terms of thinking like. Uh, like how much hope do these people have first off and then the second part is just like statistically how much hope do these people have I mean if you're only talking with people that are actually or inter interacting with people that are actually like they have a high chance of dying like what is that doing to you and like what are their actual odds of getting better so a lot of it depends on how sick they are when they first come in, and then a lot of it depends on their clinical course once they're admitted. You know, all of these patients get the same, roughly, treatments, um, and some of them decline even given that. So it's hard to, it's hard to say. Now, when they first come in and they just need some supplemental oxygen on like a face max face mask or those you know little things that you stick right. in your nose that we like to call nasal cannula fun fact fun new know. word of the day i didn't know what the fuck those things were called yeah nasal cannula <laughs> the little prongs that go up yeah. your nose every single person knows what those are nobody knows what the name of yeah. them is. Uh, nasal cannula there you go friends <laughs> happy friday wow. all right um so if they need supplemental oxygen through that um but otherwise they're doing okay they have a pretty good shot. You know, for okay. the most part, COVID isn't fatal. It's just to those that it is, it's very devastating. Right. And so we haven't really figured out a great way to predict who it's going to be. We know that older people yep. tend to get sicker. We know that people that have um, health conditions, like right. not necessarily even lung disease, but high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity are the three yeah. biggest ones that we've seen that compromise people's ability to fight off COVID, which... Michigan's got a lot of those. I'm unfortunately describing a very large majority of the United States population. Yeah. Um, so those are the things that we know. So if I see an 80-year-old that is overweight, has high blood pressure, and is a diabetic, I'm like, whew, this guy is concerning to me. Yeah. I'm going to keep a closer eye on him. We might not necessarily be able, on a normal day with non-COVID times, we would have admitted a patient like that to the ICU just because they're old and just right. because they have medical comorbidities right, or other medical problems. Right. Um, so, but in COVID times, if they don't need to be ventilated, they're not going to the ICU. So if we can get by by pumping oxygen on a face mask to them, um, we're going to do it on a regular floor and... I mean, it, we had to convert one of our regular floors to an ICU, um, which I've never seen before. Right. It's that was very strange. Um, yeah. The thing that you said that really stuck out to me there is in this hypothetical, the 80, 80 year old guy comes in, he's overweight, he's got all these health problems. And you were like, oh, I have to keep a closer eye on him where my train of thought was like, I I wouldn't blame you if you were like man, I'm, I got to focus on the people that are more likely to live. Like this guy's done no matter what I do. He's dead. I'm just like, there's nothing I could do here. Statistically, I'm going to focus on like the 60 year old who's like a little bit overweight, but is also having bad problems. Like how do you, how do you measure that? And it kind of goes back to the first thing that I said is like, how are you dealing with all this yeah well measuring it is one thing and it's not necessarily i'm ignoring the 60 year old but if the 60 year old is only you know a little bit overweight but otherwise okay and just needing oxygen they don't need my attention as much true um so it's not that i'm not focusing on them and we were lucky enough where we were very busy and we had to make a lot of changes i don't know if lucky is the correct word but we were never 
overwhelmed. Got it. You know, oh, lucky, I got it. Okay. lucky is re- lucky is a relative <laughs> term, my friend. Yeah, I guess what when you were like, yeah, we were lucky enough to be very busy. I was like, this is not a convenience store. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, customers coming through is awesome. We're making so much money. That's, that's yeah. I should have waited for you to finish the sentence. That's on me. Yeah, no, you good. You good. We're just dollar dollar bills, y'all. Yeah, exactly. Um, Hospitals are making bank off this pandemic. Quite the opposite, as they will all tell you. They are all yeah. chomping at the bit to open back up elective cases. I'm but aware. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of... My point was, we never got so overwhelmed where at the door we had to start triaging people like they did in Italy and right. saying, like, you're 85, you've lived a good life, we're going to put you in this private room and let you die. We never got to that point. Um, Man. We thought we were going to, and that's why I, a lot of state governments came down really hard on all these restrictions because we were seeing what was happening in Italy. And Italy has actually a very well-established healthcare system there. Um, And they, you know, were struggling. Well, they are an older population as well. True. There's a lot of factors there, but we might not have an older population, but we have a sick population. It's true. Um, You know, overall, the health of Americans at baseline is very poor. Right. So we were looking at this and as it was coming closer and closer to us we're like oh we're gonna be so fucked <laughs> <laughs> yeah that... it was like watching the avalanche come down from the top of the mountain and you're like oh 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 it's still going oh it's picked up more shit oh look that's boulder that's nice oh here's some trees oh god it's right at my doorstep now what so uh, yeah that was so i mean did you have like legit meetings of like how are we going to triage this like if Absolutely. it does get as bad as italy like what does that decision look like right so i wasn't directly involved with that that was for the board and the administrators sure. and you're everybody. not making any of these decisions like none no, of this I falls am, back to you you're just i the, am i am the cheap soldier labor. Yeah, I am cheap labor. And um, but those decisions were absolutely being discussed by administration. And had it come to that point, it would have been up to our attending surgeons. So as as a physician in training, I make a lot of medical decisions, but I never make them on my own. Right. I always run them by somebody, one of my superiors to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Um, So there it would have fallen to their clinical judgment. And even still. A lot of it did fall to clinical judgment. You know, if we had the 80-year-old that came in that wasn't doing well and continued to decline, uh, we had a very upfront conversation with them and their family from the beginning saying, if we put a breathing tube down your throat, if we have to put you on a ventilator, the odds are very likely that you would not come off and you would die on the ventilator. Right. So I won't say encouraged because that sounds like it's, we're you know encouraging people to not seek care and if you want everything done of course we will do everything for you but just really having people think about what their wishes are um what kind of things they want at the end of their life or if they were to decline very quickly um probably before a lot of people think of them and you know psa you should be thinking of these things no matter how old you are if you are an adult you should be thinking about what you want to do if you were no longer able to make your medical decisions or if you really want all of these things done to your body right uh, because they are pretty pretty brutal uh they can be very morbid and they can save your life but your quality of life may never be the same so we'd have very upfront conversations yeah obviously very compassionate empathetic this is a horrible decision to be placed in like do you somebody's basically telling you no matter what we do the odds you die are still high and what do you do with that information right yeah it's it's an impossible choice so um we never got to the point where we were denying people care denying people ventilators or denying people extra things um but we didn't get to that point because of very upfront conversations when people came into the hospital yeah okay yeah thank god that it didn't like get to that point where you're yeah i was not about to be military triaging i mean i would have if i had to but that's that's a very you know when you enter into the military it is something that you do sign up for we don't sign up for 
that kind of mentality right. in the public. Our mentality is always do no harm, but do the most that you can. And so we were really in in a tight spot because doing no harm may have meant not doing CPR. It may have meant not giving a ventilator to that person in order that another person that was more likely to survive to get it. So there were a lot of ethical considerations that we had throughout this whole I mean, we're not, I don't want to say this whole process because we're not through it yet. It's not over yet. We're living with COVID for many, many months, probably forever. It, the the thing is, is it just will hopefully never be this bad. Yeah. So, I mean, something, something that you said to me, uh, like a month ago was like, just stay the fuck home. So I don't have to make these decisions. Yeah. So like politically is that kind of why it never led to this is like because of these stay-at-home orders or do you like because it feel like yeah italy's older than we are but we're sicker than them why why didn't it happen are we more spread out is it like i don't know so it's uh, the stay-at-home had at-home orders definitely had a major impact um, because the virus only can survive if it has a host and so if it goes through its life cycle in a host and isn't able to jump to a new host and repeat its life cycle, it dies. Um, And by staying at home, you allow the virus to die before it has a chance to jump to a new host and infect that person and start a new life cycle and a new way to replicate and get all over. Um, So it definitely helped with making it so we weren't overwhelmed. In order for us to not come to a complete standstill or stay at a standstill for a while we definitely need more people to get infected and to give us herd immunity or we wait long enough for a vaccine i would put money on us getting herd immunity first before vaccine vaccines take a very long time to develop they take a very long time to be to prove to be efficacious um and it's not a simple thing you can whip up in a lab we have never been able to make a vaccine for a coronavirus they have tried to make a vaccine for SARS back when SARS was around in the early 2000s they tried it again with MERS and the thing is for the most part the viruses and their intensity died out before a vaccine was available and so development stopped right because we didn't really need it anymore there was enough herd immunity and the virus kind of died out and we still got isolated cases but you know they were small enough in number that we could control them. Yeah. That is kind of the, (laughs) we're going to take a break real quick. All right. So we're back. So, uh, you were just talking about herd immunity versus vaccine and how there's never been a vaccine for uh, coronavirus, like SARS and MERS kind of, um, kind of died themselves and i had always heard and i guess what i'm asking for is for you to uh confirm or deny that like there's some sort of chart with these viruses where they have to be kind of in a sweet spot of how easily they transmit and how deadly they are where like if they're too deadly then people won't go out in public and they won't really transmit it that much and it'll die out and if it's too easily transmittable on one axis uh but it's not that deadly people like you know people get sick for a little while but it's whatever and there's like a sweet spot in the middle of like oh it travels very easily and it's just deadly enough Mm -hmm. and then this is in that sweet spot of just like it travels super easily there's the two weeks that you could have it and show no symptoms so you're spreading it everywhere and like i don't know it's uh the i i tend to agree with you on the herd immunity thing like i just don't think a uh vaccine um will end up being created for another two three years despite what other people are saying Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know unless you've heard differently no so uh the first thing you mentioned which is the deadly versus infectivity of a virus is absolutely true and we chart lots of viruses this way basically it's like you know back to grade school where you have the x-axis and the (laughs) y-axis and on the x-axis is your infectious rate so as you go further to the right it gets more and more infectious Um, and then the y-axis or the vertical axis is how deadly it is and the higher up the vertical axis you go the more deadly it is Um, if a virus is extremely deadly it's 
it can be very infectious, but it tends to die out quickly and doesn't cause as much total destruction um, because a virus's way to stay alive is to jump from host to host. Right. And if a virus is too deadly, it kills its host before it's able to jump to another one. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. And so (laughs) the virus dies out because eventually it infects all of its hosts. They all die and it can't jump to another one in time. Yeah. Um, This isn't an excellent example of that kind of a thing, but Ebola somewhat falls on this of it is Ebola is highly infectious, but because it is so deadly and people that get infected with Ebola tend to die very quickly, um, it's hard to jump from person to person. And another thing is how it's transmitted, which is a little bit more complicated, but feces, right? It's what we love to call the fecal oral route, which essentially (laughs) means you somebody poops and they somehow get the bacteria on their hands, skin, clothing, something, and then they touch it or, you know, they use water to cook with that is in close contact with fecal material and then they ingest it. Right. By eating it or, you know, just smearing the poop in there. Yep. And um, so that's one thing. COVID is different because it's a respiratory droplet transmission. Um, Something that's very infectious but not very deadly is the common cold. Yeah. Um, So a lot of people get it. It runs around in the human population oodles of times. But you get sick. You're sick for a couple days and then you move on. And very, 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 very few people die of the common cold. So the common cold is actually a very effective virus in terms of its ability to replicate because it doesn't kill its host and it's very easily transmissible. And so it can just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Right. COVID and other viruses like the 1918 Spanish flu and SARS and MERS kind of fall in this more middle area or sweet spot where they're highly infectious, not quite as infectious as the common cold. COVID is not as quite as infectious as the common cold, um, but they are more deadly. Uh, But they're right at that spot where they're infectious enough to get a lot of people, but then also deadly enough to kill a fair number of people that it infects, but not so much that it dies out. So I guess the, the next question is like, there are also other types of viruses in terms of that where you've got some viruses a la polio that are one virus you can make a vaccine it's once you've made the vaccine it's it's pretty much gone as you get the herd immunity with the vaccine um you're you're going to be fine you could essentially eradicate it but then you've also got the type of virus like chickenpox where or like a flu where if you get the vaccine it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to get the illness like there are plenty of people that get the chicken box vaccine but it mutates just a little bit and you still end up getting it maybe it's a little less symptoms so i guess from what we're all hearing is like nobody really knows which lane covid is kind of in but do you know something that we don't in that Sarah, like what is what is the common uh like thought process for you guys so for COVID specifically, it contrasts with the flu vaccine because the flu is a different strain every year. And we make the flu vaccine based on very complicated algorithms and models predicting what strain will be most prevalent. Right. And so it's the influenza virus, but it's covered in different markers on the outside of the capsule that we attempt to vaccinate against. Right. COVID is unique that we know the strain. It's a coronavirus. Yeah. Just like... Influenza virus and coronavirus are analogous, but we know this specific strain. The problem is, in order for a vaccine to be effective, you have to be able to get your immune system to recognize the the pathogen and mount a response. If you inject somebody with a vaccine and it's ineffective, even if it's the right strain of whatever you're trying to vaccinate against, if it is ineffective in creating an immune response, it's an ineffective vaccine. Right. Because the only way you're able to fight off future infections with this strain is by your body recognizing it, remembering, oh, I have seen this before, and sending out its attack cells before you get the fever, before you get the symptoms. 
Um, and so if a vaccine can't do that, it's useless. And that's been one of the biggest problems with the coronavirus vaccines like COVID, like SARS, like MERS, is that we can isolate the strain just fine. That's how we've been testing for it, is we're able to isolate the strain and compare it with the sample we get from a person and see if they match. That's not the issue. The issue is developing a vaccine that mounts an immune response that is unnoticeable to you. Mm -hmm. You don't notice. You You don't get sick from the vaccine. You might get some. Yes, you don't. So you don't get sick from vaccines. You might get a slight response (laughs) to the injection, but you do not get the flu from the flu vaccine. You seem very passionate about that. (laughs) Uh, you can't see her, but she's rubbing her temples right now. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, there are just, uh, I, uh, I, nah. I, when I get like this, there's so much anger from things I All have right. to combat on a daily basis. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so it's that we, we haven't been able to find a vaccine that has a good balance of um, creating an immune response without getting the um, person being vaccinated sick. And then the other unique thing with COVID is that even even if you've been infected with it or exposed to it where your body has made antibodies, we're not entirely certain that it means you're immune from another infection from COVID. Right. Why would that happen? So that's something that we're not entirely sure of. Hmm. The best theory we have now, and I am certainly not an expert in infectious diseases, But the best theory we, that I have seen is that for whatever reason, our body doesn't create that memory response. So you have multiple different types of immune cells, and some of them are called memory cells because they are the ones that take in the information from the bacteria or the virus that you're infected with and kind of keep it in their memory banks. And so when, it's, when your body is exposed to that thing again, they can retrieve that information and then just set out and destroy the virus before it causes symptoms. And so the theory so far is that for whatever reason, coronavirus may not force your body to create those memory cells. So every time you're exposed to coronavirus, it's almost like you're being exposed to it uh, with as like a fresh specimen, like you, like your body's never seen it before and it responds in kind, um, which is, not great. We don't like that because it means yeah. most of all of the ways that we have to treat a virus, aka vaccines, which are really preventing viruses, um, isn't might not be very effective. So would having the like, would your body ever figure it out? Like, would they ever throw the antibodies you already have at it just to see what happens? They might. Like, and I mean, they're, they are trying that with not with, you know, your antibodies and your infection, right. but they are trying people that have had it and recovered. They're pulling their antibodies and injecting them into people that are sick with it right. to see, you know, and those are still very experimental treatments. We haven't really seen if they work on a large enough scale. I'm sure everyone has an anecdotal you know, story of this one guy that got it and, you know, walked on water the next day, but that's not how we do medicine and that's not how we do science. But it'd be pretty cool if we did. Oh yeah. It would be nice. (laughs) It means we, you know, maybe we, the bleach thing would have worked. Yeah. Right. That would be fun just to like shine a UV light down there and fucking cook the virus. But then like these, the virus is in your cells, dummies. Like you'd have to kill your... (laughs) You have to kill all yeah, your cells. So uh, radiation uh, is an effective treatment for a lot of things, but yeah. not for viruses because it's literally in every single cell in your entire body. It's not yeah. like a cancer, which is what we normally use radiation to treat because cancer is typically localized to one spot. The virus is yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean. Uh, you could try it, though. I mean, please don't. Actually, that was a yeah, terrible thing right. to say. Don't I, do that. Don't. 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 I could say you should try it because I don't have to deal with it later. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have a medical degree, so you can pretty much nope, say whatever the fuck I you want. I say whatever the shit I want. <laughs> it's comedy, baby. I'm just joking. The <laughs> it's, uh, No. Okay. So pretty much nobody understands. So. But I, I guess from where I'm sitting, it's like, what's the next step? Like, let's say like, oh, our our body makes antibodies and we'll never like remember our our body will get the coronavirus just over and over again. There's like, what do we do? Like, do we just live in quarantine for the rest of our lives? Like, 
I don't know. I mean, you're uh, asking an impossible question, right? Yeah. You know, we haven't been there before as a species. Um, I don't necessarily think that's what's happening with the coronavirus. I think people are seeing what they may appear to be reinfections, but could be something else. Maybe they didn't false have coronavirus the first negatives. time. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe they're maybe they weren't completely recovered and it's more of a relapse rather than a true reinfection. There are certain things that you can never be immune to. People say the common cold, but the common cold is caused by dozens of different viruses. So right. of course you're always going to get the common cold because you're immune to the, you know, seven common colds you got infected with before, but oh, there's like 70 other viruses you can get infected with. Right. So I think it's a little too soon to tell if we're never going to be able to amount an immune response to coronavirus. And I think a lot of it is conjecture and not necessarily educated conjecture um so it's you know it's a little too soon to tell if it were in that situation where you would get it over and over and over and over and over again um eventually we would just settle on a new normal of life you know we'd be doing more remote things everyone would wear masks all the time you know we and i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't count out human ingenuity People can't live like that and people would refuse to live like that. And so there would be, can you imagine how lucrative it will will be if that is the case to find something that would just fix it? Yeah. Like, it's already extremely lucrative to find the vaccine, to find an effective treatment so that people stop dying. Um, if it were so bad that everyone were affected all the time, more so than now, I have a feeling we'd be able to find something. It just might not be as quick as we right would like it to be yeah that is kind of a that is a thought that i had before is like america's very business first and not much of our gdp actually goes to science anymore especially compared to like you know when we were funding nasa and like all these other uh vaccines and you know giving money to gilead and putting out uh subsidies for this stuff and uh we've kind of lagged behind on that stuff because like what dr fauci said is like if he could change one thing it'd be like yeah the government's going to get billions of dollars to make a generic vaccine that we can edit depending on what we have that's the dream essentially um a little bit of a crazy dream i don't know your facial expression says uh not likely (laughs) (laughs) well so I think that is the dream because I think the fact that we this crisis should show us more than anything that public health should be a priority because this has been so detrimental in so many ways to our way of life, our economy, more than any war in modern times. And if you think about how much effort and money and resources we pour into our war efforts, we should be pouring that into public health because more likely than not, it will not be a massive war that kills us all. It will be something like this. And so if we don't put our resources into preventing something like this, um, it will be the eventual end of us. I don't think the coronavirus is the end of us, but I do think it will be something like this, especially as we get more advanced with weapons of war and bioterrorism because humans suck and that's what we're going to do. You're not implying coronavirus is bioterrorism. No. By the way, I want to throw that out there. I am not. (laughs) But Um, I'm saying it's a possibility. I mean, who is to say that we couldn't, weaponize something i it's it It, is a possibility and humans if nothing else love to find things to you know we like to fling shit at each other right it's our thing we like it it's great we have not really advanced too far beyond ape mentality right we've gotten fancier tools but boiling it down we're still just flinging shit at each other out of trees so um someone will always find a way to weaponize things they just do and we need to be prepared for that but we also need to be prepared for spontaneous things that come up in the environment and if you look at how devastating it is to me it seems foolish to not from this point forward invest in public health so that we don't have to think of it you know we just like we don't think about war it's it's just kind of in the back of our minds that oh well you know the military is going to take care of it it's not really going to affect our day-to-day life even though we are very heavily involved in military pursuits all over the world as the United States 
Um, we need to be the same with public health because it, it we, I mean, just, just look outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well put. I mean, we're at an hour. Anything else? Any last words for the listeners? And they should do. <laughs> Please wash your hands. Please get your vaccines as scheduled. Get your flu vaccine. It's not poison. I promise. Please don't drink bleach. And please stay home. Beautiful. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for doing this. We'll, uh, we'll get an update when uh, things have gotten a little better or uh, hopefully not a little worse. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. We'll se- see. There will be a second wave as we open things up. The goal is to make it not as bad as the first. All right. Cool. I'll talk to you later. Bye.